Your listenership is so important to us. We really do hope you're enjoying the show. If you're able to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it would be enormously helpful in allowing us to reach more people and help them get a good night's sleep. So is following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other podcast player that you use. Thank you so much for your support. Good evening. Tonight, I'll be reading Part 1, Chapters 1-4 to of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Part 1 Chapter 1 Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Everything was in confusion in the Oblonsky's house. The wife had discovered that the husband was carrying on an intrigue with a French girl who had been a governess in their family, and she had announced to her husband that she could not go on living in the same house with him. This position of affairs had now lasted three days, and not only the husband and wife themselves, but all the members of their family and household were painfully conscious of it. Every person in the house felt that there was no sense in their living together, and that the stray people brought together by chance in any inn had more in common with one another than they, the members of the family and household of the Oblinskys. The wife did not leave her own room. The husband had not been at home for three days. The children ran wild all over the house. The English governess quarrelled with the housekeeper and wrote to a friend asking her to look out for a new situation for her. The man-cook had walked off the day before, just at dinner time. The kitchen-maid and the coachman had given warning. Three days after the quarrel, Prince Stepan Arkadyevich Oblonsky, Steva, as he was called in the fashionable world, woke up at his usual hour, that is, at eight o'clock in the morning, not in his wife's bedroom, but on the leather-covered sofa in his study. He turned over his stout, well-cared-for person on the springy sofa, as though he would sink into a long sleep again. He vigorously embraced the pillow on the other side, and buried his face in it. But all at once he jumped up, sat up on the sofa, and opened his eyes. Yes, yes, how was it now, he thought, going over his dream. Now, 
How was it? To be sure, Alabin was giving a dinner at Darmstadt. No, not Darmstadt, but something American. Yes, but then Darmstadt was in America. Yes, Alabin was giving a dinner on glass tables, and the tables sang. Il mio tesoro, not il mio tesoro, though, but something better. And there were some sort of little decanters on the table, and they were women too, he remembered. Stepan Arkadyevitch's eyes twinkled gaily, and he pondered with a smile. Yes, it was nice, very nice. There was a great deal more that was delightful, only there's no putting it into words, or even expressing it in one's own thoughts awake. And noticing a gleam of light peeping in beside one of the serge curtains, he cheerfully dropped his feet over the edge of the sofa, and felt about with them for his slippers a present on his last birthday, worked for him by his wife on his gold-coloured Morocco. And, as he had done every day for the last nine years, he stretched out his hand, without getting up, towards the place where his dressing gown always hung in his bedroom. And thereupon he suddenly remembered that he was not sleeping in his wife's room, but in his study, and why, the smile vanished from his face, he knitted his brows. Ah, 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 oh, he muttered, recalling everything that had happened, and again every detail of his quarrel with his wife was present to his imagination. All the hopelessness of his position, and worst of all, his own fault. Yes, she won't forgive me, and she can't forgive me, and the most awful thing about it is that it's all my fault. All my fault. Though I'm not to blame. That's the point of the whole situation, he reflected. Oh, 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 he kept repeating in despair as he remembered the acutely painful sensation caused him by this quarrel. Most unpleasant of all was the first minute when, on coming, happy and good-humoured from the theatre, with a huge pear in his hand for his wife, he had not found his wife in the drawing-room, to his surprise had not found her in the study either, and saw her at last in her bedroom with the unlucky letter that revealed everything in her hand. She, his dolly, forever fussing and worrying over household details, and limited in her ideas, as he considered was sitting perfectly still with the letter in her hand, looking at him 
with an expression of horror, despair, and indignation. What's this? This, she asked, pointing to the letter. And at this recollection, Stepan Arkadyevitch, as is so often the case, was not so much annoyed at the fact itself as at the way in which he had met his wife's words. There happened to him at that instant what does happen to people when they are unexpectedly caught in something very disgraceful. He did not succeed in adapting his face to the position in which he was placed towards his wife by the discovery of his fault. Instead of being hurt, denying, defending himself, begging forgiveness, instead of remaining indifferent even, anything would have been better than what he did. His face utterly involuntarily. Reflex spinal action, reflected Stepan Arkadyevich, who was fond of physiology. Utterly involuntarily assumed its habitual, good-humoured, and therefore idiotic smile. This idiotic smile he could not forgive himself. Catching sight of that smile, Dolly shuddered as though at physical pain, broke out with her characteristic heat in a flood of cruel words, and rushed out of the room. Since then, she had refused to see her husband. It's that idiotic smile that's to blame for it all, thought Stepan Arkadyevitch. But what's to be done? What's to be done? he said to himself in despair and found no answer. Chapter 2 Stepan Arkadyevitch was a truthful man in his relations with himself. He was incapable of deceiving himself and persuading himself that he repented of his conduct. He could not at this date repent of the fact that he, a handsome, susceptible man of thirty-four, was not in love with his wife, the mother of five living and two dead children, and only a year younger than himself. All he repented of was that he had not succeeded better in hiding it from his wife, but he felt all the difficulty of his position and was sorry for his wife, his children, and himself. Possibly he might have managed to conceal his sins better from his wife, if he had anticipated that the knowledge of them would have had such an effect on her. He had never clearly thought out the subject, but he had vaguely conceived that his wife must long ago have suspected him of being unfaithful to her, and shut her eyes to the fact he had even supposed that she, a worn-out woman, no longer young or good-looking, and in no way remarkable or interesting, merely a good mother, 
ought from a sense of fairness to take an indulgent view. It had turned out quite the other way. Oh, it's awful. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Awful. Stepan Arkadyevitch kept repeating to himself, and he could think of nothing to be done. And how well things were going up till now, how well we got on. She was contented and happy in her children. I never interfered with her in anything. I let her manage the children and the house just as she liked. It's true, it's bad, her having been a governess in our house. That's bad. There's something common, vulgar, in flirting with one's governess. But what a governess. He vividly recalled the roguish black eyes of Mademoiselle Roland and her smile. But after all, while she was in the house, I kept myself in hand. And the worst of it all is that she's already. It seems as if ill luck would have it so. Oh, oh, but what, what is to be done? There was no solution, but that universal solution which life gives to all questions, even the most complex and insoluble. That answer is, one must live in the needs of the day, that is, forget oneself. To forget himself in sleep was impossible now, at least till night time. He could not go back now to the music sung by the decanter woman, so he must forget himself in the dream of daily life. Then we shall see, Stepan Arkadyevitch said to himself, and getting up, he put on a grey dressing gown lined with blue silk, tied the tassels in a knot, and, drawing a deep breath of air into his broad, bare chest, he walked to the window with his usual confident step, turning out his feet that carried him full frame so easily. He pulled up the blind and rang the bell loudly. It was answered at once by the appearance of an old friend, his valet, Matvey, carrying his clothes, his boots, and a telegram. Matvey was followed by the barber with all the necessaries for shaving. Are there any papers from the office? asked Stepan Arkadyevitch, taking the telegram and seating himself at the looking-glass. On the table, replied Matvey, glancing with inquiring sympathy at his master, and, after a short pause, he added with a sly smile, They've sent from the carriage jobbers. Stepan Arkadyevitch made no reply. He merely glanced at Matvey in the looking-glass. In the glance in which their eyes met in the looking-glass, it was clear that they understood one another. 
Stepan Arkadyevich's eyes asked, Why do you tell me that? Do you know? Matvey put his hand in his jacket pockets, thrust out one leg, and gazed silently, good-humouredly, with a faint smile at his master. I told them to come on Sunday, and till then not to trouble you or themselves for nothing, he said. He had obviously prepared the sentence beforehand. Stepan Arkadyevich saw Matvey wanted to make a joke and attract attention to himself. Tearing open the telegram, he read it through, guessing at the words, misspelt as they always are in telegrams, and his face brightened. Matvey, my sister, Anna Arkadyevna, will be here tomorrow, he said, checking for a minute the sleek, plump hand of the barber, cutting a pink path through his long, curly whiskers. Thank God, said Matvey, showing by this response that he, like his master, realised the significance of this arrival. That is, that Anna Arkadevna, the sister he was so fond of, might bring about a reconciliation between husband and wife. Alone, or with her husband, inquired Matvey. Stepan Arkadyevich could not answer, as the barber was at work on his upper lip, and he raised one finger. Matvey nodded at the looking-glass. Alone. Is the room to be got ready upstairs? Inform Daria Alexandrovna where she orders. Daria Alexandrovna, Matvey repeated as though in doubt. Yes, inform her. Here, take the telegram, give it to her, and then do what she tells you. You want to try it on, Matvey understood, but he only said, Yes, sir. Stepan Arkadyevich was already washed and combed, and ready to be dressed, when Matvey, stepping deliberately in his creaky boots, came back into the room with the telegram in his hand. The barber had gone. Daria Alexandrovna told me to inform you that she is going away. Let him do, that is you, as he likes, he said, laughing only with his eyes and putting his hands in his pockets. He watched his master with his head on his side. Stepan Arkadyevich was silent a minute. Then a good-humoured and rather pitiful smile showed itself on his handsome face. Eh, Matvey? he said, shaking his head. It's all right, sir. She will come round, said Matvey. Come round? Yes, sir. Do you think so? Who's there? asked Stepan Arkadyevich, hearing the rustle of a woman's dress at the door. It's I, said a firm, 
pleasant woman's voice, and the stern, pock-marked face of Matrona Filimonovra, the nurse, was thrust in at the doorway. Well, what is it, Matrona? queried Stepan Arkadyevich, going up to her at the door. Although Stepan Arkadyevich was completely in the wrong as regards his wife, and was conscious of this himself, almost everyone in the house, even the nurse, Daria Alexandrovna, chief ally, was on his side. Well, what now? he asked disconsolately. Go to her, sir. Own your fault again. Maybe God will aid you. She is suffering so. It's sad to see her. And besides, everything in the house is topsy-turvy. You must have pity on the children. Beg her forgiveness, sir. There's no help for it. One must take the consequences. But she won't see me. You do your part. God is merciful. Pray to God, sir. Pray to God. Come, that'll do. You can go, said Stepan Arkadyevich, blushing suddenly. Well now, do dress me, he turned to Matvey and threw off his dressing gown decisively. Matvey was already holding up the shirt like a horse's collar, and, blowing off some invisible speck, he slipped it with obvious pleasure over the well-groomed body of his master. Chapter 3 when he was dressed, Stepan Arkadyevich sprinkled some scent on himself, pulled down his shirt cuffs, distributed into his pockets his cigarettes, pocketbook, matches, and watch with its double chain and seals, and shaking out his handkerchief, feeling himself clean, fragrant, healthy, and physically at ease. In spite of his unhappiness, he walked with a slight swing on each leg into the dining room, where coffee was already waiting for him, and beside the coffee, letters and papers from the office. He read the letters. One was very unpleasant, from a merchant who was buying a forest on his wife's property. To sell this forest was absolutely essential, but at present, until he was reconciled with his wife, the subject could not be discussed. The most unpleasant thing of all was that his pecuniary interests should in this way enter into the question of his reconciliation with his wife and the idea that he might be led on by his interests, that he might seek a reconciliation with his wife on account of the sale of the forest, that idea hurt him. When he had finished his letters, Stepan Arkadyevich moved the office papers close to him, rapidly looked through two pieces of business, 
made a few notes with a big pencil, and pushed away the papers, turned to his coffee. As he sipped his coffee, he opened the still damp morning paper and began reading it. Stepan Arkadyevich took it and read the liberal paper, not an extreme one, but one advocating the views held by the majority. And in spite of the fact that science, art, and politics had no special interest for him, he firmly held those views on all these subjects which were held by the majority and by this paper, and he only changed them when the majority changed them, or, more strictly speaking, he did not change them, but they imperceptibly changed of themselves within him. Stepan Arkadyevich had not chosen his political opinions or his views. These political opinions and views had come to him of themselves, just as he did not choose the shapes of his hat and coat, but simply took those that were being worn. And for him, living in a certain society, owing to the need, ordinarily developed at years of discretion, for some degree of mental activity, to have views was just as indispensable as to have a hat. If there was a reason for his preferring liberal to conservative views, which were held also by many of his circle, it arose not from him considering liberalism more rational, but from its being in closer accordance with his manner of life. The Liberal Party said that in Russia everything is wrong, and certainly Stepan Arkadyevich had many debts and was decidedly short of money. The Liberal Party said that marriage is an institution quite out of date and that it needs reconstruction and family life certainly afforded Stepan Arkadyevich little gratification, and forced him into lying and hypocrisy, which was so repulsive to his nature. The Liberal Party said, or rather allowed it to be understood, that religion is only a curb to keep in check the barbarous classes of the people and Stepan Arkadyevich could not get through even a short service without his legs aching from standing up, and could never make out what was the object of all the terrible and high-flown language about another world, when life might be so very amusing in this world. And with all this, Stepan Arkadyevich, who liked a joke, was fond of puzzling a plain man by saying that if he prided himself on his origin, he ought not to stop at Rurik and disown the first founder of his family, the monkey. And so liberalism had become a habit of Stepan Arkadyevich's, and he liked his newspaper as he did his cigar after dinner.
for the slight fog it diffused in his brain. He read the leading article, in which it was maintained that it was quite senseless in our day to raise an outcry that radicalism was threatening to swallow up all conservative elements, and that the government ought to take measures to crush the revolutionary hydra, that, on the contrary, in our opinion, the danger lies not in that fantastic revolutionary hydra, but of the obstinacy of traditionalism clogging progress, etc., etc. He read another article, too, a financial one, which alluded to Betham and Mill, and dropped some innuendos reflecting on the ministry. With his characteristic quick-wittedness, he caught the drift of each innuendo, divined whence it came, at whom and on what ground it was aimed, and that afforded him, as it always did, a certain satisfaction. But today that satisfaction was embittered by Matrona Filimonovna's advice and the unsatisfactory state of the household. He read, too, that Count Beast was rumoured to have left for Wiesbaden, and that one need have no more grey hair, and of the sale of a light carriage, and of a young person seeking a situation. But these items of information did not give him, as usual, a quiet, ironical gratification. Having finished the paper, a second cup of coffee and a roll and butter, he got up, shaking the crumbs of the roll off his waistcoat, and, squaring his broad chest, he smiled joyously not because there was anything particularly agreeable in his mind. The joyous smile was evoked by a good digestion. But this joyous smile at once recalled everything to him, and he grew thoughtful. Two childish voices. Stepan Arkadyevich recognized the voices of Grisha, his youngest boy, and Tanya, his eldest girl, were heard outside the door. They were carrying something and dropped it. I told you not to sit passenger on the roof, said the little girl in English. There, pick them up. Everything's in confusion, thought Stepan Arkadyevich. There are the children running about by themselves and going to the door, he called them. They drew down the box that represented a train, and came in to their father. The little girl, her father's favourite, ran up boldly, embraced him, and hung laughingly on his neck, enjoying, as she always did, the smell of scent that came from his whiskers. And last, the little girl kissed his face, which was flushed from his stooping posture and beaming with tenderness, loosed her hands, and was about to run away again, but her father held her back. 
How is Mama? he asked, passing his hand over his daughter's smooth, soft little neck. Good morning, he said, smiling to the boy, who had come up to greet him. He was conscious that he loved the boy less, and he always tried to be fair, but the boy felt it and did not respond with a smile to his father's chilly smile. Mama, she's up, answered the girl. Stepan Arkadyevich sighed. That means that she's not slept again all night, he thought. Well, is she cheerful? The little girl knew that there was a quarrel between her father and mother, and that her mother could not be cheerful, and that her father must be aware of it, and that he was pretending when he asked about it so lightly. And she blushed for her father. He at once perceived it, and blushed too. I don't know, she said. She did not say we must do our lessons, but she said we were to go for a walk with Miss Huell to Grandmama's. Well, go, Tanya, my darling. Oh, wait a minute, though, he said, still holding her and stroking her soft little hand. He took off the mantelpiece where he had put it yesterday, a little box of sweets and gave her two, picking out her favourites, a chocolate and a fondant. For Grisha, said the little girl, pointing to the chocolate. Yes, and still stroking her little shoulder, he kissed her on the roots of her hair and neck, and let her go. The carriage is ready, said Matvey, but there's someone to see you, with a petition. Been here long? asked Stepan Arkadyevich. Half an hour. How many times have I told you to tell me at once? One must let you drink your coffee in peace at least, said Matve, in the affectionately gruff tone with which it was impossible to be angry. Well, Show the person up at once, said Dublinsky, frowning with vexation. The petitioner, the widow of a staff Captain Kalinin, came with a request impossible and unreasonable. But Stepan Arkadyevich, as he generally did, made her sit down, heard her to the end attentively without interrupting her and gave her detailed advice as to how and to whom to apply, and even wrote her, in his large, sprawling, good and legible hand, a confident and fluent little note to a personage who might be as used to her. Having got rid of the staff captain's widow, Stepan Arkadyevich took his hat and stooped to recollect whether he had forgotten anything. It appeared that he had forgotten nothing except what he wanted to forget, his wife. Ah, yes, he bowed his head, and his handsome face assumed a harassed expression. To go or not to go, 
he said to himself, and an inner voice told him he must not go, that nothing could come of it but falsity, that to amend, to set right their relations was impossible, because it was impossible to make her attractive again and able to inspire love or to make him an old man, not susceptible to love. Except deceit and lying, nothing could come of it now, and deceit and lying were opposed to his nature. It must be some time, though. It can't go on like this, he said, trying to give himself courage. He squared his chest, took out a cigarette, took two whiffs at it, flung it into a mother-of-pearl ashtray, and with rapid steps walked through the drawing-room and opened the other door into his wife's bedroom. Chapter 4 Daria Alexandrovna, in a dressing jacket, and with her now scanty, once luxuriant and beautiful hair, fastened up with hairpins on the nape of her neck, with a sunken, thin face and large, startled eyes, which looked prominent from the thinness of her face, was standing among a litter of all sorts of things, scattered all over the room, before an open bureau from which she was taking something. Hearing her husband's steps, she stopped, looking towards the door, and trying assiduously to give her features a severe and contemptuous expression. She felt she was afraid of him, and afraid of the coming interview. She was just attempting to do what she had attempted to do ten times already in the last three days, to sort out the children's things and her own, so as to take them to her mother's, and again she could not bring herself to do this, but now again, as each time before, she kept saying to herself that things cannot go on like this, that she must take some step to punish him, put him to shame, avenge on him some little part at least of the suffering he had caused. She still continued to tell herself that she should leave him, but she was conscious that this was impossible. It was impossible because she could not get out of the habit of regarding him as her husband and loving him. Besides this, she realized that if even here, in her own house, she could hardly manage to look after her five children properly, they would be still worse off where she was going with them all. As it was, even in the course of these three days, the youngest was unwell from being given unwholesome soup 
and the others had almost gone without their dinner the day before. She was conscious that it was impossible to go away, but, cheating herself, she went on all the same, sorting out her things and pretending she was going. Seeing her husband, she dropped her hands into the drawer of the bureau as though looking for something, and only looked round at him when he had come quite up to her. But her face, to which she tried to give a severe and resolute expression, betrayed bewilderment and suffering. Dolly, he said, in a subdued and timid voice. He bent his head towards his shoulder and tried to look pitiful and humble, but for all that he was radiant with freshness and health. In a rapid glance she scanned his figure that beamed with health and freshness. Yes, he is happy and content, she thought, while I, and that disgusting good nature, which everyone likes him for and praises. I hate that good nature of his, she thought. Her mouth stiffened. The muscles of the cheek contracted on the right side of her pale, nervous face. What do you want, she said in a rapid, deep, unnatural voice. Dolly, he repeated with a quiver in his voice. Anna is coming today. Well, what is that to me? I can't see her, she cried. But you must, really, Dolly. Go away, go away, go away, she shrieked, not looking at him, as though this shriek were called up by physical pain. Stepan Arkadyevich could be calm when he thought of his wife. He could hope that she would come round, as Matvey expressed it, and could quietly go on reading his paper and drinking his coffee. But when he saw her tortured, suffering face, heard the tone of her voice, submissive to fate and full of despair, There was a catch in his breath and a lump in his throat, and his eyes began to shine with tears. My God, what have I done? Dolly, for God's sake, you know. He could not go on. There was a sob in his throat. She shut the bureau with a slam and glanced at him. Dolly. What can I say? One thing, forgive, remember, cannot nine years of my life atone for an instant. She dropped her eyes and listened, expecting what he would say, as it were beseeching him in some way or other to make her believe differently. Instant of passion, he said and would have gone on, but at that word, as at a pang of physical pain, 
her lips stiffened again, and again the muscles of her right cheek worked. Go away, go out of the room, she shrieked still more shrilly, and don't talk to me of your passion and your loathsomeness. She tried to go out, but tottered, and clung to the back of a chair to support herself. His face relaxed, his lips swelled, his eyes were swimming with tears. Dolly, he said, sobbing now, for mercy's sake, think of the children. They are not to blame, I am to blame, and punish me, make me expiate my fault. Anything I can do. I am ready to do anything. I am to blame. No words can express how much I am to blame. But Dolly, forgive me. She sat down. He listened to her hard, heavy breathing, and he was unutterably sorry for her. She tried several times to begin to speak and could not. He waited. You remember the children, Steva, to play with them. But I remember them, and know that this means their ruin, she said. Obviously one of the phrases she had more than once repeated to herself in the course of the last few days. She had called him Steva, and glanced at her with gratitude and moved to take her hand, but she drew back from him with aversion. I think of the children, and for that reason I would do anything in the world to save them, but I don't myself know how to save them, by taking them away from their father, or by leaving them with a vicious father, yes, a vicious father. Tell me, after what has happened, can we live together? Is that possible? Tell me, eh, is it possible? She repeated, raising her voice. After my husband, the father of my children, enters into a love affair with his own children's governess. But what could I do? What could I do, he kept saying in a pitiful voice, not knowing what he was saying, as his head sank lower and lower. You are loathsome to me, repulsive, she shrieked, getting more and more heated. Your tears mean nothing. You have never loved me. You have neither heart nor honourable feeling. You are hateful to me, disgusting, a stranger, yes, a complete stranger. With pain and wrath, she uttered the word so terrible to herself, stranger. He looked at her, and the fury expressed in her face alarmed and amazed him. He did not understand how his pity for her exasperated her. 
She saw in him sympathy for her, but not love. No, she hates me. She will not forgive me, he thought. It is awful, awful, he said. At that moment in the next room, a child began to cry. Probably it had fallen down. Daria Alexandrovna listened, and her face suddenly softened. She seemed to be pulling herself together for a few seconds, as though she did not know where she was and what she was doing, and getting up rapidly, she moved towards the door. Well, she loves my children, he thought noticing the change of her face at the child's cry. My child, how can she hate me? Dolly, one more word, he said, following her. If you come near me, I will call in the servants, the children. They may all know you are a scoundrel. I am going away at once and you may live here with your mistress. And she went out, slamming the door. Stepan Arkadyevich sighed, wiped his face, and with a subdued tread walked out of the room. Matvey said she will come round, but how? I don't see the least chance of it. Ah, oh. How horrible it is, and how vulgarly she shouted, he said to himself, remembering her shriek and the words scoundrel and mistress, and very likely the maids were listening, horribly vulgar, horrible. Stepan Arkadyevich stood a few seconds alone, wiped his face, squared his chest, and walked out of the room. It was Friday, and in the dining room, the German watchmaker was winding up the clock. Stepan Arkadyevich remembered his joke about this punctual, bald watchmaker. That the German was wound up for a whole lifetime himself to wind up watches, and he smiled. Stepan Arkadyevich was fond of a joke, and maybe she will come round. That's a good expression. Come round, he thought. I must repeat that. Matvey, he shouted, arrange everything with Daria in the sitting room for Anna Arkadyevna, he said to Matvey when he came in. Yes, sir. Stepan Arkadyevich put on his fur coat and went out onto the steps. You won't dine at home, said Matvey, seeing him off. That's as it happens. But here's for the housekeeping, he said, taking the ten roubles from his pocket. That'll be enough. Enough or not enough, we must make it do said Matvey, slamming the carriage door and stepping back onto the steps. Daria Alexandrovna 
Meanwhile, having pacified the child, and knowing from the sound of the carriage that he had gone off, went back again to her bedroom. It was her solitary refuge from the household cares which crowded upon her directly as she went out from it. Even now, in the short time she had been in the nursery, the English governess and Matrona Filimonovna had succeeded in putting several questions to her, which did not admit of delay, and which only she could answer. What were the children to put on for their walk? Should they have any milk? Should not a new cook be sent for? Ah, let me alone, let me alone, she said, and going back to her bedroom, she sat down in the same place as she had sat when talking to her husband, clasping tightly her thin hands with the rings that slipped down on her bony fingers and fell to going over in her memory all the conversation. He has gone, but has he broken it off with her, she thought. Could it be he sees her? Why didn't I ask him? No, no, reconciliation is impossible. Even if we remain in the same house, we are strangers, strangers forever. She repeated again with special significance the word so dreadful to her. And how I loved him. My God, how I loved him. How I loved him, and now I don't love him? Don't I love him more than before? The most horrible thing is, she began, but did not finish her thought, because Matrona Filimonovna put her head in at the door. Let us send for my brother, she said. He can get a dinner anyway or we shall have the children getting nothing to eat till six again, like yesterday. Very well, I will come directly and see about it. But did you send for some new milk? And Daria Alexandrovna plunged into the duties of the day and drowned her grief in them for a time.